This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Hey, hey, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Something in the culture shifted a couple weeks ago. It was August 24th, around 8.45 p.m. My husband was at his computer and he kept hitting refresh on the social media platform, formerly known as Twitter. He, like millions of you and me, wanted to see the photo of the year. And when the pic finally dropped, I heard him scream from the other room. Breaking news, this is an image that will be in the history books. Looks like we are just getting the mugshot for former President Donald Trump. And there it is. Yeah. Let's just take that in for a second. When former President Trump's mugshot from Fulton County Jail crossed the wires, I dissected every part of that little square, from his scowl to his blue blazer and red tie, to how his head was slanted and how his hair seemed wilder than ever. It's been a little over two weeks since that picture was released, but it hasn't left my mind. That tiny photo has come to represent so much. I'm not talking politically. There are plenty of other NPR shows that have covered that already. For me, that mugshot embodied two threads in our current culture. One, the power of the portraits we make and consume in this age of selfies. And two, how the laws designed to police organized crime in this country are expanding and shifting before our eyes. That's what I want to talk about today, the much larger meaning of the current trials of President Trump. The RICO law that once brought down mobsters now staring down a former president. And oh, that stare itself. Let's start with Trump's mugshot and what it teaches us about a very specific kind of image making. The alleged American criminal in the camera. Past, present, and future. And we're going to begin with someone who covers and reports on images every day. I get a lot of mail from readers when I write about what politicians wear, in particular what male politicians wear, sort of saying, you know, you are reading too much into this. This is not right. You know, you are overthinking it. And this, this strategist said to me, you would be shocked at the amount of time I have to spend discussing tie color, you know, when we should be talking about, like, peace process. Vanessa Friedman is a senior fashion critic with The New York Times. Because it matters. Because we make so many judgments about the elected leadership based on what we think of them, which is mostly based on what they're wearing, right? How they look, the image they're projecting. Like, do we like them? Do we not like them? Do we want to have a beer with them? Do we trust them? It's not because of their policy papers. The two of us sifted through mugshots of politicians, activists, and celebrities to understand why mugshots have so much impact. Vanessa Friedman, welcome to It's Been a Minute. It is a pleasure to be with you. Oh, thank you. Uh, okay, so first things first, I got to get your take on this. If you were being indicted on RICO charges and you were getting your mugshot taken, what face would you make? What expression are you giving? That is a terrifying question to even contemplate. <laughs> yeah, I, I am honestly, I'm not sure there is any good answer to that. I, w- I think I would probably try to be as perfectly neutral as I possibly could be. I think I would probably try to... Smize. Smize. 
<laughs> I think I just might. I mean, you know, I might not be getting out of there anytime soon. So it's like I might as well serve. You would you would pull the Al Capone look is what you're saying. <laughs> yes, the Al Capone look. Exactly. Before it was Tyra Banks. <laughs> Before it was Tyra Banks. First it was Al Capone. <laughs> so um, this makes me want to do a thought experiment here with you. Vanessa, let's say you're a communications director for a politician who's being booked for an alleged crime. What message would you want your client to give in their mugshot? What kind of face are you telling them to make and why? It really depends on the context in which they're being booked and also the image they've created for themselves already and who they're trying to talk to, right? It depends if they're speaking to an audience that they think wants them to look defiant or an audience they're trying to convince this is like really not a big deal or an audience they want to say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, think about it, like Hugh Grant after, after his slightly ignominious incident. Mm. He looked so like deeply abashed in his mugshot. You know, and that's, a, that's an actor. You know, that's someone who knows what every frame of every picture they're ever in is doing. And I do not think that was an accident. You know, it looked, it looked very sort of off the cuff, but I'm sure it was not. As a fashion critic, you know, you're someone who critiques and dissects matters of appearance and self-presentation. When you look at the mugshot of former President Donald Trump, perhaps the most viewed image of this year, what do you see? I see someone who knew exactly what he was doing. This is an image that his team knew was a possibility starting back in April in the first indictment in New York. And I am sure from that moment, they were talking about strategy, right? If this were to happen, what do we want to convey, as you say? Because everyone knew that as soon as there was a mugshot of a former president, which is an absolutely unprecedented event, it would become immediately a historical image. Mm. And therefore, every detail in that, that was under their control, is going to matter. And I'm sure, you know, he probably practiced that look, which is a traditional Trump look. It's, it's almost the same face as he made in his first official portrait as president. And I think you see someone who is conveying defiance, anger, the idea that he's going to fight. He looks like he's about to headbutt the camera. And for his base, you know, that is the man they know, right? That's the man they're going to vote for. That's the image they're buying into, literally buying into, because now there's merch of it. So I think, you know, it, it was a very strategic pose. Hmm. You know, I, I think of Trump's mugshot, obviously, as something that sits, as an image that sits within a long history of political mugshots, which I want to get to in a second. But I can't help but think his image is is more closely aligned with some famous celebrity mugshots. Like I see some overlap between Trump and Paris Hilton's mugshots, you know, from their hair to their expressions. What is most similar to me between Trump and Paris Hilton's mugshots is that they both seem to have known that this photo was going to have a life far beyond that moment. I think the thing that Trump understands, which Paris Hilton understands, which increasingly I think any public person understands is that we are all brands. Whether you're a Hollywood celebrity, a TV celebrity, a political celebrity, whatever, like you're a brand. And as a brand, you contain a host of values that are communicated in imagery. 
so for Trump or for Paris Hilton, they also see that like any time you have an opportunity to get an image out there, good or bad, it's good, right? It's like it's the it's the modern equivalent of all publicity is good publicity. <laughs> and you know, I mean, for most people, a mugshot would not be good publicity. Same way, like a sex tape probably would not have been good publicity. But in today's kind of strange, through the looking glass, black mirror world, it might be. There's a word that you used earlier that I want to come back to. Like normally I would describe the look on Trump's face as like angry or kind of scowling. But because we were looking at a mugshot from a jail, a different word comes to mind. You used the word defiant earlier. And I would also use that word to describe Trump's expression. How do you think the medium of a mugshot changes the meaning of someone's expression? It somehow communicates something is wrong, right? It certainly communicates suspicion, that you, that there is suspicion of wrongdoing, that there has been enough of a finding to get you to a jailhouse. And jail is, you know, jail is bad. It's shameful. So I think the idea of a mugshot often comes with this underlying association with all those words. You know, that you've been caught. You've transgressed, right? You are immoral, maybe. And usually people in that situation, I think, feel, even if they are innocent, probably, some sort of knee-jerk sense of shame. The exception being people who have been jailed for protesting what they see as unjust laws, right? So like Rosa Parks has a mugshot. Martin Luther King Jr. has a mugshot. And those mugshots, I think, we see now not as symbols of shame in any way, but as actual like images of power and strength and you know the ability to speak truth to wrongdoing. Hmm. So many of the mugshots that we have talked about, the famous mugshots, infamous maybe perhaps, mugshots that we've discussed today are of white public figures. You brought up two very famous Black people, MLK and Rosa Parks, but I also think about um, Senator John Lewis, you know, who was arrested for protesting decades ago. You know, these are also mugshots with major political implications and historical implications and images that we all know so well. How would you describe their expressions in their photos? I think it is more sort of direct. They're very direct pictures of their faces. They're not smiling. They're not looking like they want to hit the camera like Donald Trump. And, you know, we read meaning into them again in hindsight. And they have become these sort of images of honor, right? Mm. And the sort of character of a person. And I think, you know, um, the guy who is kind of credited as the, the inventor of the mugshot the formal mugshot, this French policeman called Alphonse Bertillon did it back in 1880. He used to call mugshots portrait parlé, which means speaking images. Hmm. And I do think that's one of the sort of sources of their power. They do seem to really communicate something about the soul of the person photographed. And certainly in the cases you mentioned, I think those pictures have come to symbolize that. These images, as you mentioned, became over time images of defiance for the public. Like they have meaning now that maybe perhaps they didn't have as the surface meaning that many people at the time read into them back then. Um, you know, Rosa Parks and, and, and Martin Luther King Jr.'s mugshot photos have been put on protest signs and printed on T-shirts. I was at 
the On the Run 2 tour in Philadelphia five years ago, seeing Beyonce and Jay-Z, and they just showed all sorts of different mugshots. They had Frank Sinatra, Meek Mill, all these people. Um, and they also had their mugshots up there as well. Very pointed imagery that was meant to communicate something. These images have really become signals over time. Why do you think these images, specifically you know, these civil rights leaders that I've mentioned, their mugshots were so powerful or have become so powerful to the public? I think the mugshots stand for what we now think they stood for, right? For, for that moment in time when they stood up to what was wrong with our culture, our society, and have come to represent the morality and progress that they mm. enabled. And the mugshot is almost the sort of tipping point, right? Like the moment in time where now, like, they represent the past and we look forward to the future that they created. You know, mm. it's almost like a fulcrum caught mm. in a picture. Mm. We've been talking a lot about the meaning that we find in a mugshot from the moment it's released to what it comes to mean over time. And I wonder, what do you think Trump's mugshot will mean over time? And how might that meaning change? I think it, it's completely, almost completely dependent on how this all plays out, right? Does he actually get found guilty in these four cases that have been brought against him? Hmm. What happens then if he is found guilty? Does he get reelected? You know, all of those things will change how we see this. In hindsight, because the narrative isn't finished yet. We're just partway through. You know, it's possible, as Sean Wilentz, an American history professor at Princeton, told me that, you know, this will be seen when we look back at this time period as the kind of natural endpoint of a political arc that started with Richard Nixon, right, and his I'm not a crook. Hmm. But if it's not the end, right, if it's in fact the beginning of something else, right, if Trump does get reelected, then it becomes part of a different story and probably will hmm. represent something else. So I think... The final meaning is yet to be written. Hmm. Well, Vanessa, thank you so, so much for coming on the show today. It was so great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for all those really good questions. That was really fun. That was Vanessa Friedman. She's the senior fashion critic for The New York Times. Vanessa is right. The full meaning of Trump's mugshot is still being determined. It will in part be decided in the courtroom, where the former president and his co-conspirators face RICO charges. Coming up... We're looking at why Trump is being charged under laws originally meant to address mob crimes and why those types of charges seem to be more and more common today. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. 
With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections. We just talked about the meaning of mugshots and how they're interpreted by the public. Now I want to turn to the law and how our interpretation of it reveals how what constitutes a crime changes over time. Former President Trump and his co-conspirators are being charged in Georgia for RICO violations. The indictment alleges that the defendants engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result. Now, for some of you, that might have been the first time you ever heard the term RICO. But for those of us who watched and rewatched and rewatched HBO's The Sopranos, we know RICO. I'm because of RICO. Is he your brother? No, the RICO statutes. Oh, of course, you know? right. I mean, if there's one thing I know about Tony Soprano, dude's gonna dodge a RICO charge. My hunch, 80 to 90% chance you'll be indicted. Which makes sense. RICO was originally designed by Robert Blakey in 1970 to address organized crime, in particular, the mafia. Blame it on Tony Soprano, but for years, I've carried around the idea that one... RICO equals mobs. And two, if you're charged under RICO, you're done. But over the past year, I've started noticing RICO applied to non-mafia organizations. Young Thug and the YSL gang in Atlanta, you get a RICO. Shein, the fast fashion brand, you get a RICO. Former President Trump, you get a RICO. And just this week, another case in Atlanta has been a surprising application of RICO. The state's Republican attorney general has announced a sweeping new RICO indictment against 61 activists and others he accuses of being part of a, quote, criminal enterprise to stop Cop City. And as I've been following these stories, I've started to wonder, are we in a RICO reboot? A renaissance? A RICO revolution? Is the statute being applied more generously, or are we just more aware of it because it's touching pop culture in new ways? I think it's the latter. That's Morgan Cloud. He's Professor Emeritus at Emory Law in Atlanta and an expert on the RICO Act. RICO has been around since 1970, and it's been actively used for over 40 years, both on the federal level and the state level. It's just right now with the indictment of particularly the president (laughs) and all the president's men and women, it's hard to miss. So there's not more RICO charges today. It's just being applied to people and organizations we're all familiar with. But that still doesn't answer my other question. How did a law designed to address mobs end up being trouble for a fast fashion brand, a former president, and young thug? And more controversially, should it be applied like this? Like a good professor, Morgan Cloud had an answer. Morgan, welcome to It's Been a Minute. How are you? I'm delighted to be talking to you. 
So RICO law stands for Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, which as I understand it is meant to prosecute multiple crimes that occur in service of a broader goal. So for example, if Jack steals guns, Joe robs banks, and Jane steals cars, but they act together for the greater purpose of, you know, stealing a certain amount of money, they could be collectively charged under the RICO Act. Is is that how you would break down how it works? Well, that's a good start. That's a really good start. The traditional focus of criminal law has been identify the one criminal, Jack, (laughs) and the individual crime of gun robbery or something, and for the law enforcement and prosecutors to convict him or her of that crime. RICO came out of increasing concern about organized crime, particularly on the East Coast of the United States. But that traditional approach, we're going to get the guy who commits the crime and put him in prison, was inadequate to deal with the kind of mob size and wealth and power that was evolving very rapidly in New York and in New Jersey, Florida. Right. And so they were looking for a different kind of approach that would do what you said, not just catch the guy, but try to identify an entire group or organization that poses an ongoing threat of criminality and not just arrest the individuals, but destroy the group. And so that's kind of the ultimate original goal of the RICO statute. So, okay, I wonder why couldn't the law sufficiently address those kinds of crimes before? Most criminal law enforcement takes place in the state courts. And so one thing that RICO was designed to do was to allow the federal government to have jurisdiction over crimes committed in a much broader geographical area. On top of that, one of the really profound political concerns underlying the RICO statute was the recognition that organized crime in the 50s and 60s was becoming really economically powerful. There was just a perceived need of some kind of national level law enforcement methodology to grapple with a national or nationwide problem. Mm, I understand that. You know, even though for me, and as you mentioned, for many other people, the RICO law is very commonly, I think, culturally associated with bringing down organized crime in the mafia. When I look at most of the big RICO charges that are in the news right now, there doesn't appear to be like a traditional or similar crime syndicate involved. Like there's the Trump case, of course. There's the Sheehan fast fashion case, like the YSL case. It's a case that's attracted a lot of attention (laughs) for who it involves. Rappers, specifically rappers, uh, Young Thug and Gunna. Of the cases you mentioned, the one that's the most classic RICO anti-gang mob case is the YSL case. In many ways, it's just a standard and conventional racketeering prosecution. The kinds of crimes that are alleged in the YSL indictment are murder, Mm -hmm. armed robbery, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, possession of a firearm. This is exactly the kind of activity that the original statute with its original focus on organized crime was designed to go after. All that's different from my point of view in the YSL case is the most famous defendant, not Gunner, but Young Thug, is famous. He's (laughs) a famous rap artist 
known all over the world. That draws coverage. The second is the prosecutor in the indictment has alleged that some of the lyrics of some of his songs are part of his efforts to keep his group close together and proud and aligned, but also to scare away adversaries. That's not the only big RICO case that people are talking about in the news right now. There's another one that comes to mind. Shein, the fast fashion company, is being sued by designers whose lawyers say that Shein's alleged crimes amount to RICO-level offenses. This case is a little different as Shein's not being indicted on RICO charges by a national or you know state-governing body. But that cultural association between Shein and RICO has formed and already stuck with the public. Talk to me about how this is a RICO case. This goes back to something you said uh, quite insightfully a few minutes ago, that it looks like the RICO statute was somehow designed to be broader than just go after the mob. And I've always thought that this had to be on the back of Bob Lakey's mind, that the RICO statute could be used in context broader than the traditional organized crime. Racketeer is a label, but it's not a definition. Now let's get back to the Sheen case. Is that right? Sheen, I'll go with that. Sheen, Sheen, yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, One of the more recently added crimes to the list of federal RICO crimes is criminal copyright infringement. And so the Sheen complaint goes through some detail alleging how this Chinese company has set up this elaborate scheme, this elaborate enterprise that's been going on for years to directly steal and reproduce designs by small designers usually and make Mm -hmm. money off them and and just steal the copyrights. According to the complaint, Sheen produces 6,000 new designs a day. So, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of events. Mind-boggling, yeah, mind sure, boggling. yeah. Yeah, and that's part of their case. They're saying, look, they can't be doing this with their own creative effort. They've got to just be stealing because who can produce six designs a day, let alone 6,000? Right, 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 right. Yeah. If the court's persuaded that there's been a case made, that there's a pattern of racketeering and further to enterprise and so on, then this will be a civil case hmm. in which... Damages can be proven, would be rental for triple damages, lawyers' fees, and costs of litigation for the plaintiffs. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. You hypothesized that Bob Lakey, who um, is the architect of RICO, you hypothesized that he had a larger or broader application or use in mind when creating this group of laws. And, um, you know, it makes me think about how it's being applied, of course, with Donald Trump and, and a group of his associates, including Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> um, <laughs> somebody who famously was prominent in his use of the RICO statute in the 80s. We all know that Trump is a former U.S. president and, you know, a real estate developer who is not known to work for a crime syndicate. But as you mentioned, he's working with a group of people to do something because that's how we got here. So why is he and why are his associates, why have they been indicted on RICO charges? Why is this a RICO case? This is a RICO case that I think might be impossible to bring under the federal statute. Mm -hmm. But it's very possible and fits, I think, perfectly with the Georgia statute. 
The RICO statutes all list a series of crimes that are considered racketeering activities. For example, obstruction of justice is a racketeering activity that's a predicate crime for a RICO prosecution, probably everywhere. Mm -hmm. Another common crime all over the country is called making false statements. And that's knowingly lying to someone who who works within the government department or agency about a matter within the authority of that agency or department. That's called the crime of false statements. It's a federal crime. It's a state crime. On the federal side, it is not a predicate crime for RICO. Hmm. The feds could not prosecute anyone for racketeering by making false statements. Under Georgia law, making false statements and writings is a very specifically listed crime. Hmm. And so the phone call by Mr. Trump to Mr. Raffensperger, that's alleged to be a false statement. I won the state. Mr. Giuliani's repeated, I think twice, testimony before Georgia Senate committees, where he claimed to have all this evidence of votes being stolen and dead people voting and people under the age of 18 voting and so on, uh, knowing that those were false, the indictment alleges, those are false statements within the meaning of the false statement statutes. And every one of these statements, perhaps maybe statements by Mr. Meadows or Ms. Powell or one of these other Trump supporters uh, and activists, mm-hmm. those could all be individual crimes of false statements. Every one of them then becomes the basis for charging a RICO violation for committing false statements in a pattern in support of the enterprise designed to overturn the election results. Okay, so in our conversation today, we've been talking about the RICO statutes, the RICO Act, in terms of how it can be beneficial for prosecutors or the state or people who are pursuing civil cases who are looking to like address an organization or address a group of people, not just for one singular crime or offense. And we've been talking about how broadly we've been discussing, you can see just in all of the different cases that we've talked about today, how broadly RICO can be applied. But I also wonder, like, what are the dangers of that? Like, you know, when you're looking at even just one state alone taking Georgia, you've got Trump, you've got YSL, you've got, you know, these protesters recently that were indicted by the state for a variety of activities that apparently amounted to RICO charges. What are the dangers and how broadly the RICO Act can be applied? I mean, I think that that's, you know, its breadth is its strength, but it's also, it poses dangers. The defendant Lana's trees indictment is built around a RICO prosecution of protesters against the development of a big forest in the middle of the city that will include the biggest police training facility in the country. So like $90 million, you know, facility or something like that. Yeah. In the indictment, there are actions alleged that really would classically fit within a RICO construct of any sort, like attacking buildings and trying to destroy buildings or uh, destroying police cars or attacking people or committing violence or threatening violence. But there are also a number of people who, as best, I I just got a copy of the indictment yesterday and I skimmed through it and it looked to me like there were people who were buying supplies to go camping in the woods. Right. And so the range of the indictment reaches people who, if proven, have really engaged in bad criminal conduct, but also reaches people 
who maybe were just trying to protect the forest from development. And we're literally buying camping supplies and trying to preserve the trees the way environmental activists have for decades. From the left's point of view, there's an example of exactly the concern that you're raising. And that is definitely built in to the criminal law across the board. But the RICO statute is particularly vulnerable to that complaint. And, and it's, an, it's, a, it's a legitimate complaint. Hmm. Well, Morgan, thank you so much for joining me today. I really learned a lot. Okay. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. That was Morgan Cloud. He's Professor Emeritus at Emory Law, where he specializes in RICO law. Walking away from this conversation, I want you and I to both chew on something that's sticking with me. Here's the thing. Prosecutors think Trump did something wrong. In their view, Trump cannot objectively try to overturn an election and compromise democracy and say that that's okay. But the question Rico is asking is if he and his co-conspirators broke the law. And the answer to that question will tell us whether or not our current laws can address the kinds of wrongdoing that Trump is alleged to have engaged in. And maybe answer whether or not it should address it. Because as Professor Morgan said, Rico's breadth is its strength, but also its danger. The answer will determine whether we reach the end of this political story or if we're just at the beginning. You'll know when, in a year from now, you look at Trump's mugshot and what you see in it has either changed or stayed the same. Set a calendar notification and let me know what you see next fall. Coming up, I'm getting to one of your burning questions of the week. I'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Osea. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. They both come in giftable boxes with savings up to $46 and free shipping for a limited time. Go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Patrice here, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. And I just listened to Cardi's new song, Bongos, featuring Meg the Stallion. So I'm going to need all the pumpkin spice latte girlies to hold out for just a little bit longer because... Summer has just been extended thanks to this major bop, okay? That bop, 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 bop. That keeps playing through my ear. What I want to know is, what did you think of the song, Brittany? Are you feeling this sequel to WAP? Patrice, thank you so much for calling in with this question. Personally, I'm loving it. The video, uh, it recalls the baby boy video with Beyonce and Sean Paul. It also reminds me a little bit of the unreleased video that Alicia Keys and Beyonce recorded down in Brazil. It's embodying summer. It's embodying vacation. Oh, I wanted to be there. And the song, this song was like an earworm. Bongos? I mean, it's like, it's still reverberating and ping-ponging around my brain right now. Like so many amazing little puns, there's some things I cannot repeat here, but there was one line that Megan Thee Stallion said. I mean, I screamed. I'm like, oh my God, what a visual, what poetry. My only sadness about this song and this video is that they did not come out like May 15th. I think this is something we needed Memorial Day weekend. I needed this last weekend, Labor Day weekend. I needed this, you know, 4th of July. I needed this song all summer. This is the song of the summer that we have been needing, that we have been looking for. September 8th? Y'all left me hanging. That's my only sadness about this. So... As far as I'm concerned, Bongos is a hit. I have a feeling that the streets are already loving it. I have a feeling that this weekend, it's going to go just completely nuts at the clubs. I won't be there. I'm usually not at the club. But now I just want more. Now I'm just like, girls, give me some albums, please. Like, I'm, we're starving out here. It's no TV to watch. Give me something to listen to. Thank you so much, Patrice, for calling in with this amazing question. I'm so glad that I got to discuss this phenomenal song and gorgeous video. Have a great weekend. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose. This episode was edited by Bilal Qureshi, Jessica Placek. Engineering support came from Josh Newell. We had fact-checking help from Candice Bo Corkamp. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of Programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of Programming is Anya Grundman. All right. That's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. 
Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.